0: It may feel like a pipe dream right now, but at some point in the next few months, Australians will be allowed to travel the world. But what happens when they come back? What is going to become of quarantine? Yes, this week on Download This Show, the app being trialled to enforce home quarantine. Is it a threat to privacy or an acceptable risk? Plus, Apple's weirdest backflip, the UK government challenged in court over their private group chats. And would you pay for something? with a QR code. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Finell, and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, Alice Clark, age columnist and freelance journalist. Welcome back to Download This Show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And Josh Taylor, Guardian reporter, welcome. It's great to be back with you.
1: Excellent. Um, now,
0: Alice, a couple of days ago, you got up very, very early in the morning just so you could see what uh, Apple had to announce. The, the main headline, as far as I can tell, is that uh, all those dongles I bought for my laptop where I had to get everything to connect to USB-C, I may not have needed to have done.
1: correct a You now have a drawer full of things that aren't quite as useful as they were yesterday. <laughs> but unless you're upgrading, they're still exactly as useful. And if you sell your laptop, you can pass them on to the next person.
0: <laughs> so the context around this is that a couple of years ago, uh, Apple brought out new uh, laptops, etc., and they took away all of the different sort of connections. I'm actually lifting up my laptop as I do this. They had all these different <laughs> connections for like, uh, you know, SD cards and, other things, but they replaced it all with just USB-C, which is, you know, it's small, it's, it's pretty, but it was also very annoying because you wanted to be able to connect a lot of stuff to your laptop and suddenly you had to buy a dongle to do that. And they've, well, they've backflipped, haven't they?
1: Yeah, they gave Johnny Ive too much power and then realised people still need to plug stuff in.
0: And out of all of the other announcements, apart from um, the dongle backflip, is there anything else that you thought was particularly interesting that Apple had announced?
1: Uh, well, the Touch Bar is dead. Everybody hated the Touch Bar and MacBook Pros because they never used them. And now the Function Bar is back, which is nice. Uh, but there's also new AirPods. Uh, they look a bit more like the AirPod Pros, but they're smaller and they still have the same tips as the old AirPods. And there's also a cheap Apple Music tier that I don't know why it exists. <laughs> Just
0: with the... um. With the touch bar. So this is in the last generation of Apple laptops, there was this little bar at the top that was like a little, a, a tiny piece of touch, touchscreen that would mm. variably come up with like, um, you know, s- predictive text or if you wanted to control the volume, it would be there. Why didn't it
1: work? Because like, it, it feels like it should have, but it didn't. Why? Because if you're looking at the screen to do something, You then want to touch type the thing that you want it to do rather than look down at a little tiny bar that keeps changing to do the touching. Like if you want to touch a screen, you want to touch the actual screen, not just a little bar. Like I enjoyed it. It's really good for Final Cut Pro shortcuts, but unless you're using a Pro app or one of the very few games that utilize it. I don't think most people noticed it and said they just missed the function keys.
0: All right. In other news, uh, home quarantine apps are likely to be a part of the next couple of years in terms of international travel in and out of Australia, but there are a range of security concerns with them. Um, Josh, I might just get you to introduce us to this app because I think a lot of people will be hearing it for the, about it rather for the first time. What exactly are they intending to use these home quarantine apps for?
2: Yeah, so they've got this uh, system in place in WA, but I think the main focus has been on the trial in South Australia because that could be potentially used in other jurisdictions. So essentially, rather than having to spend two weeks in a hotel, as a lot of places are doing at the moment in Australia, um, you'll be able to quarantine from your home if you're returning from overseas. And uh, you'll, you'll have an app on your phone that you'll get random notifications saying you need to check in to say... Um, to prove that you're at home and you'll have 15 minutes to respond to it and and the way that they do that is you've got to um, upload a photo a selfie of yourself um, to a government server with the location data as well so they'll be able to see that you are who you say you are and you're in the location that you say you are now this has caused a little bit of concern because uh you know the government is keeping, I guess, a record of, of all your photos within quarantine for who knows how long. Um, the, the privacy controls aren't, are, aren't really strong. But it's, again, one of those things that, you know, are people willing to sacrifice their privacy in order to to have this, I guess, a little bit of an easier return to Australia once, um, once international travel resumes?
0: To that point, Alice, it, it seems like... Uh, home quarantine might be phased out relatively quickly. I mean, we don't really know exactly what's going to happen, to be honest, but it seems like home quarantine might not be around for very long. So how much use are these apps going to actually be?
1: I I guess how useful was the COVID Safe app? It's probably (laughs) a good question. But this one is much more open to harm. I think once the government finds a way to make people get used to a facial recognition app, I think there are a lot of potentially bad ramifications that could come from that. I also, I love your uh, thought that maybe home quarantine could end soon. That sounds really great. Speaking from Victoria, I think it just would have been really great if we had purpose-built quarantine facilities that people could go to. Like I get that the government and people want to save money by quarantine at home instead of a hotel quarantine, but I don't think the amount of privacy that's being given up with these apps is worth that cost?
2: Well, I think the easier way for them to do it would just be to um, have have all the information only retained on the phone. So, like you could you could process uh, you know facial recognition technology and location information on the phone. So it would never need to be uploaded to a government server to verify that a person is home. Like that, that's a very easy solution to get past it. But I do think um, you know all things being what they are in this pandemic and everything is unpredictable all the time. There will be sort of a mismatch of of um, uh, what different states are doing. So, New South Wales is obviously moving away from hotel quarantine um, and, and quarantine entirely for that matter. Um, you know, it's hard to see what Victoria is going to be doing but, you know, those those purpose-built facilities are still ongoing. So, I think there will be a bit of a, uh, a, a mismatch of, of what different states are doing but... Um, I think the important thing here is that, you know, it doesn't really matter how long we use this sort of technology for. It's it's really just important to get it right the first time and, and not sort of accept governments doing things a bit half assed I guess.
0: Are there other apps like this being used around the world, Josh?
2: So, they're, I think it's in Hong Kong that they're using sort of a wristband type situation, which is not too far from an ankle bracelet. And I think, you know, we've, we've seen definite trials of it in other parts of the world. But a lot of countries now, you know, the UK, places like that, are moving away from this sort of quarantine requirement and, and um, things like that. Even even the UK is now moving away from ha- having people check in using QR codes and things like that. So we're sort of at lagging behind it all a little bit when it comes to what, what different countries are doing in response to COVID and, and how to sort of handle opening up again.
0: So very much like our vaccine rollout.
2: Yeah, exactly. As as the vaccine rollout has as lagged, so has our responses to it generally.
0: If you had to choose between a sort of an ankle bracelet scenario or an app with your face sort of uploading up to a server, Alice, if you had to choose between those two things,
1: where which direction would you go in? One hundred percent ankle bracelet. Why? One hundred percent. Then
0: just the well, face the fact face factor. Because I think some people might find the idea of an ankle
1: bracelet a bit. A bit prisony in nature, just a tad? Well, we're under home rest. It's already a bit prisony. Like the whole point is to make sure we don't leave. And either the government needs to trust that we won't leave our home quarantine, which the situation Tasmania has already shown they can't trust, even if we're in hotel quarantine. So either you put us in a purpose-built facility, or you find a way to track us. And I would rather it be, you know, monitoring my location data instead of having access to photos. Mm. It's just weird. I I don't even take any interesting photos. They'll just get a whole bunch of random photos of my teeth in the inside of my bag, and yet (laughs) I'd rather an ankle bracelet.
0: How about you, Josh? If you had to choose between the ankle bracelet or the photo option, which direction would you go in? I mean, if it could be designed properly, the, I think the
2: photo version would be fine. I think the, the broader issue here is that, you know, the reason why the Tasmanian one is a story is because they have no COVID at the moment, whereas, you know, in a place like Victoria, New South Wales, the risk of someone coming back from overseas who has COVID is increasingly diminishing. So, you know, the, the, it's more likely that you'll get COVID walking down the street or well not walking down the street in the supermarket or something like that in uh, Victoria than you will from someone who's coming through in hotel quarantine. Now, that's not true for like all the, the, you know, the potential future variants and things like that. And so there should be screening processes in place, but they already have those in place before you get on the plane. So I think as, as we move out of this, the need for people to be spending so many weeks locked up is diminished. So this sort of technology will probably fall by the wayside in a while.
0: So it'll be something of an interim technology either way.
2: Yeah, I think I think it'll only be used for a matter of months, hopefully.
0: Mm. All right. Download the show. is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week, Josh Taylor from The Guardian and Alice Clark, age columnist and freelance journalist. Mark Fennell is my name and the government in the UK is facing a high court challenge over its use of WhatsApp and instant messaging. Um, I think we sort of became generally more aware that this was being used... <laughs> In a, in an Australian context, whenever there seems to be a major spill or a leader gets uh, expunged uh, from federal parliament, it usually happens over WhatsApp, or at least that's the idea. But it's interesting that this idea is actually being challenged, that, that encrypted apps being used in a government context might not necessarily be the way we want governments to work, Alice. What exactly are they arguing in court?
1: So... Government communication is supposed to be kept so it can be accessed by freedom of information and so it can be released after a certain number of years, which I think is very reasonable. I would love future generations to be able to see Barnaby Joyce complaining about Malcolm Turnbull. I mean, just you can do that now, to be that.
0: fair. <laughs> True, you can just ask him.
1: but He'll say it in front of cameras. But the idea of having politicians talking about the business of government in a private and encrypted way that will never be accessed by the public is disconcerting.
2: I unfortunately have the precedent of uh, you know setting the, the freedom of information case law for this in Australia. I, a couple of years ago, filed a freedom of information request for um, Wicker chats that were happening between um, Kevin Rudd and then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull regarding him trying to get the top job at the UN. Um, so, these chats were widely reported, but when I FOI'd the um, Prime Minister's office—they said they couldn't find any chats because, you know, for whatever reason, they'd been deleted already. It, I think it took about a year for the for the Information Commission to come back and say, "No, there's no record of them," and it falls into this little annoying hole in um, in law in Australia where if they can't find something. In, um, in FOI, there's no sort of recourse to say, well, it should still be there. So it's it's a really annoying gap at the moment where, and, I, and I've tried it again a couple of times with, um, I think, Maurice Payne's WhatsApp messages to the, the Indonesian foreign minister regarding um, Australia's moving the uh, Israeli embassy into Jerusalem. Um, couldn't find anything with that as well. So it's, it's one of those things that's a constant source of frustration with me. And I think they absolutely should be keeping records of these sorts of things.
0: Do you think that their case will get any traction in the UK?
2: It's one of those things that's quite annoying for a journalist who's doing these FOI requests um, when they can't sort of find these things. I find people mostly don't care about it too much. I think the intrigue here is is a lot of uh, concern about what Boris Johnson has been doing. So that might get the public's attention a bit more and might hopefully lead to something more. Um, I think it'll take it will take a while for anything like that to sort of happen here. We, we haven't sort of, you know, outside of leadership spills and things like that, we haven't seen any super big concerns of things being said over WhatsApp. But I think the other thing to, to mention here is that on the one hand, you've got all these government ministers using these apps and basically turning a blind eye when these messages are deleted with no context at the same time that they're specifically passing national security legislation to try and get into these encrypted communication services for law enforcement purposes. So they're trying to have, I guess, two bites of the apple here.
1: I just find it really interesting how Australians and, as, as you say, the English people don't particularly mind as much about the WhatsApp stuff, aside from journalists, when America literally had a whole thing about but her emails. It seems we only care about encrypted and deleted and private government communications when it's Hillary Clinton. Mm. Which is odd, well, not I, particularly a useful observation, but odd. I guess they all
0: feed into a slightly bigger conversation, which is that you know for the longest time, official government communications were recorded. They were kept. In the case of Richard Nixon, they were kept <laughs> in secret. Um, but I, I think the point is that um, if you want to have some sort of visibility into the operations of, of of government, either now or you know in a couple of years' time when they're classified uh, when they're declassified you lose that visibility either in the present or in the past by by having things not recorded. And I guess the, the the question I sort of come down to is is what is the appropriate level of of transparency that that you would expect from government, right? So obviously there not everything will ever end up being public. And I think I kind of get that. It's it's just like, where do you feel like the line should be, Josh?
2: I think you know, this is part of a broader society-wide discussion about, I guess, ephemerality. So, how long do we want our communications that we, you know, post online to be in existence for? Um, I think, you know, similar to how, you know, every single conversation that you have over text or group chat, you know, we've seen that that um, very, very hilarious New York Times uh, feature on, on the bad art friend and the group chats being made public in that um, – Stuff that you say to friends in passing, or like passing conversations that you wouldn't actually write down, you probably don't want to be ever be made public. And, and I think that's probably true for government too. Like you don't want every sort of passing conversation to end up being made public. But I think with government, they do have much more of a responsibility because if it is related to um, to use of taxpayer funds or, or what they're doing in, in public and stuff like that, people do have a right to know. And, and it, you know, if they're going to not keep records of these things because of the technology that they appear on, then I think that's, that's something we have to have to debate about.
1: I think when it comes to government communications, it's always best to err on the side of caution. Keep all of them, make it as transparent as is safe on a national security level, but also at the same time, delete all of my group conversations so they cannot be subpoenaed in the case of Bad Art Friend.
0: <laughs> you see why that that's uh, that's a double standard though, right? <laughs>
1: Not really, because nothing I say is of consequence to the nation, whereas communications between government ministers has the potential to change, ruin, or affect lives in some way. What they do shapes what country we are, how we are perceived, what rights we have, and what we could do. You need to be as transparent as possible when you're doing these things.
0: But what about all those secret conversations you have with all your sources that go into your excellent columns?
1: Well... That's, no.
0: (laughs) I put you on the spot. You handled it very well. Take care. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Uh, Mark Fennell is my name. And you might have noticed recently that there's been a number of major outages of big services. So, of course, you know, Facebook and Instagram went down not that long ago and it's been happening more and more. So the question is why? Why have there been so many instances of the internet being broken? Josh, Explain to me why my internet keeps breaking down.
2: So I think, you know, the internet was started as a bit of a, you know, network of computers and everything was sort of um, very, very far apart, very separated and everything like that. But over time, through massive technology companies and through consolidation and everything like that, we've seen to discover sort of these single points of failure in networks now. So if you just look at the Facebook one, that was an instance where Facebook, because it had bought all its competitors, including Instagram and WhatsApp and things like that, when Facebook had an outage, then all of Facebook services went out, including WhatsApp and Instagram. Um, There was also the the Fastly outage, um, the Akamai outage, where it's basically like a lot of companies on the internet rely on these Services that provide a single point of failure where if one of these things go down it goes down for all and, and a lot of these companies haven't sort of been able to Get a lot of backup methods to to um, to make sure that you know if one service goes down they can quickly pop up somewhere else so Unfortunately, it, it's just sort of showing the consolidation of the internet and how we're sort of relying on on such a Small amount of service providers for so much of what we actually consider the internet now
1: Is it something we can expect more of Alice? Absolutely. The more it consolidates, the more it'll take for just one person to accidentally upload the wrong code to take down a quarter of the internet. It's the problem with relying on people and relying on people to maintain such a massive chunk of what we rely on for so many things. Josh, the, the thing you were saying earlier
0: about consolidation is fascinating to me because I the, my understanding is that those content distribution networks, where you've got sort of servers based all around the world and you connect up to the one that's closest to you, I would have thought that that would have meant that the sort of the risk was sort of amortized, it was spread out by having, you know, the different servers spread around the world. Is How is that not the case here? Did I miss some crucial part of the technical process?
2: It was just one of those things where they'd, I, I think they'd done something wrong on their and it pushed out an update and it had sort of not taken, in, in in like lots of different places, so it meant that you know even though the content was supposed to be distributed, it meant that um, causing one failure caused all these failures. So yeah, I think I think we will probably end up seeing more and more of it. I think it's just one of those things that um, these businesses who do um, provide all these services need to be constantly aware of. And I think you know, for example, in Facebook's example. Um, they that will add to growing calls for them to be you know split up split up and divide divided into smaller companies because if you know if whatsapp can go down which is so heavily reliant on such a large part of the world because facebook's gone down then you know we have bigger problems here and i think although it's it, a lot of the other outages are, are quite technical and, and a lot of people won't understand it i think it will Probably lead to particularly large companies looking to diversify where they're where they what services they're using and trying to find you know potential backups so you know they can stay up as long as possible and it just shows that how much we all rely on these services now that um, you know a couple of hour long outages can can make the news and 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 be you know a big deal for everyone.
0: Is <laughs> yes, I do wonder when those outages happen if it forces us to reevaluate sometimes our relationship with them. I mean, obviously Facebook's been in the news quite recently, Alice, but. And I think a lot of people are re re-evaluating their relationship with them anyway. But I feel like when it goes out there's and you can't access it, there's a moment of like, huh, do you have that
1: reaction as well? I, I do for a little bit. I go, huh, this is what life is like without it. But then I immediately go back to normal. It's like after a lockdown, you come out and you're like, yes, I will live life better now. I will never take anything for granted. And then two weeks later, you're still back home watching Netflix again because that's just what you do it doesn't fundamentally change you as a person who you you have to work harder than just think about it for the two hours while it's gone sadly
0: mm, i mean it's, it's interesting like josh this week uh, i lost access to my twitter account for a couple of hours because i'm an idiot who didn't turn on two-factor authentication i got <laughs> hacked uh and i had about four or five hours of that twitter and i don't feel like i have a deep relationship with twitter but i do remember like when i didn't have it i was like after you get through the initial, like, stress of, like, logging on and saying, I've lost my account, please fix, Twitter support, and they were great. But there is this moment of, like, how much do I need this thing? Like, how, how much, how, how reliant am I on this weird dopamine hit of social media? Do you ever have those reactions?
2: It's one of those things where you catch yourself scrolling when you're just like, oh, I, I can't actually scroll, so I don't know what my finger's doing, essentially, <laughs> which is it's a little bit of a bad uh, space. I know with a Facebook outage, apart from like WhatsApp going down, I didn't really hugely notice it because I don't really check Facebook all that much during the day anyway. Mm. Um, it's more sort of an evening scroll. I think Instagram probably I noticed a bit more, but... It's one of those things. I mean, you can't really compare it to say the Akamai outage because the Akamai outage took down banking websites and took down The Guardian, for example. So um, I kind of need The Guardian to be up in order to do to live. Um, but I think you know, I think if the four or I think it was five hours outage that Facebook had caused a lot of people to rethink how how much they use it. That that's obviously a good thing. And I think all the revelations we're seeing in the past few weeks about Facebook um, will probably stir that a bit more. I think Facebook's definitely on the back foot at the moment in terms mm. of um, uh, p- popularity and, and a lot of people making comparisons to to the addictions of smoking at the moment. So, you know, I think a lot of people are probably re-evaluating re-evalu- the, the relationship with it. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people I've talked to have said, If we could get an an app that was just two things, which is basically just like event invites and a messaging service, that would be totally fine.
0: Yeah. It would also just be all all the uh, kick you need to, to delete the Facebook app finally. Uh, and finally here on Download This Show, we've all become quite used to using QR codes in the last years, amazing technology that's been around forever that suddenly found its purpose <laughs> in the pandemic. But what if you could use a QR code to pay for things? Um, the technology that we're talking about has been something that's been dubbed EQR. Very catchy. Uh, but, Alice, exactly what is it?
1: So in the same way that you currently scan a QR code to check in to venue, you would scan a QR code to pay money. It's kind of like using your existing uh, contactless payment things on your phone, only it requires more steps and it's more complicated.
0: (laughs) How is it more complicated? Like in what sense?
1: sense? Well, it's, it's another few steps. At the moment, I can just generally point my watch at a payment terminal, Apple Pay will come up, I double press a button and it's done. This way, I have to open a camera app or the QR code app. I have to scan it. I have to get the exact right angle. I have to press another button. It's just adding more steps, though I suppose it is more compatible with more payment services. So if your payment service is not currently compatible with Google Pay, Samsung Pay, Apple Pay, this is another option. Mm. It's worth pointing out. But I'm but not the- sure if it's a good option.
0: It's worth pointing out that uh, a number of the banks, Commonwealth Bank, National Australia Banks, Coles, Woolies have sort of signed up to be a part of it. Do you think it'll take off? Because there is a, a sense now that pe- people, like two, three years ago, people were just not using QR codes for things. Now, of course, everybody who leaves their house has to use a QR code. Do you think that um, that familiarity, I guess, with the technology is going to drive people to, to use it more for things like this, Josh?
2: I think what Alice said is correct. I think that the convenience will always win out and... I think the banks don't really have much power in forcing people to, to use different things. I know before Apple Pay and Google Pay were in Australia, the banks tried a few different like, uh, like near field communications type things um, that didn't really take off. And, and it's just, it's clear that like, Whatever's most convenient for the consumer is what they're going to end up using. And, and most people are using um, some form of, although I think I think Apple said recently that it's only around 10% of all transactions in Australia, something like that. Um, so it's not a huge amount, but at, at, I guess at the point of sale, it's, it's quite a lot. And if, if you do have to go through a few steps to use it, um, that's going to be more complicated. I just see this as a cynical attempt by the banks in particular to um, try to bypass these Payment systems because they don't like the terms on which Google and Apple offer for them. They like they don't like that that um, you know that the fees are taken and things like that from the banks for, for processing this. So they're trying to find a way to essentially get those two companies out of the system and and you know just have a direct relationship with with um, the customers. But um, I don't think that a lot of people will pick it up. I, I mean I, I could be proven wrong, but I, I just don't think it'll it'll take off.
0: In terms of what parts of that relationship that uh, banks find unpalatable, I mean, what? how much are they actually losing in, in transactions? Just in general terms. I'm not asking for percentages and dollars and cents, but but how much do they really lose in in each of those transactions?
2: I don't think they've ever sort of exa- stayed in full. There's, there's a recent Senate inquiry into um, digital payment systems and the banks, like the Commonwealth Bank in particular, complained about how much it was... Um, you know having to spend on this but it's a it's a tiny 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 percentage of of how much money combank makes annually so um, I, I can understand you know compared to Apple and Google it, you, Commonwealth Bank can cry poor but compared to other businesses in Australia not so much
0: I guess the question in my mind is when they say it's this tiny fraction is it a tiny fraction of all transactions or is it a tiny fraction of physical transactions
2: say it's it's everything so it's not just um, in-person transactions, it's also online bank like um, online sales. So when you go to a website and you click through that way, um, I guess all those sorts of payments and you know card payments as well. We use the physical card as well like that. And I, so, although it doesn't sound like a huge amount, it is still quite a significant
0: portion. I guess. So ultimately, Alice, you reckon the the convenience of sort of Google and Apple Wallet style things is going to win out?
1: Absolutely. I think even my mother in her seventies has come over to Apple Pay. I've stopped carrying a wallet in general. I, I don't think I'm going to trade Apple Pay and Samsung Pay for a QR code. The moment I have to tap more than one thing, you've already lost my interest.
0: All right. With that, I shall leave you very big thank you to our guests this week. Alice Clark, age columnist, freelance journalist. Thank you so much for coming back on Download this Show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And the pleasure is entirely mine. And Josh Taylor from The Guardian. Thank you so much for being back on the show. It was
2: great to be on again.
0: If you enjoyed the program, make sure you leave a review on whichever app you happen to peruse us on. Um, With that, I shall leave you. My name has been and will likely continue to be Mark Fennell. I'll catch you next week for another episode of Download This Show.